So uh, my name is Randall Lobb. I'm uh, the the captain of Tennille. Faux pop. Oh, okay. The captain of Faux Pop. I rolled film my school. eyes prematurely. Sorry. I'm the captain of Faux Pop Film School here, and uh, tonight we have a special surprise. Mark Hussey's not here, but Isaac Elliott Fisher is here. Surprise! Whoa! Everybody's so surprised. Wow! The people who are on listening to this audio version will be just shocked. They will be so shocked because I didn't sound like Mark when, in our earlier banter, in our banter at the beginning. But the people who are watching this, and they're, I, I can only imagine. They would how say, many. you know, what they think they'd think Mark shaved his head and grew a beard. Which could happen. Why is Isaac here, everybody wondered. Well, because last week you said that I would be here this week, which was over a month ago. And do you know what happened? <laughs> Many things. I know, probably a 50% of all podcasts or, you know, sort of shows are about people talking about sorry that we didn't have a show. At least the ones that I'm involved in. <laughs> yep. They're always about sorry that the ones we didn't that I like have. to listen to are always like, oh, we we come out at a glacier pace, glacial pace, or a glacier pace, glacier pace. Mm-hmm. Glaciers are formed quicker than our pockets. Same joke every time. Well, we, this isn't a joke; it's terrible. But we've really been in a grind, haven't we? Like for real. It's There's a actually grind. a glacier going through Goddard right now. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's we're riding it. Yeah, we're on top of the glacier. The reality, the glacier is we're trying to get a He-Man. Masters of the Universe documentary done in time to show to a potential distributor, and it is no easy task. Well, it's it? basically more like, in that case, we're like riding on the back of a freight train and trying to hold on. And that freight train is called Mark Hussey. Oh, that's a slow-moving freight train. There's your glacier, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's more like a glacier. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. Welcome to Faux Pop Film School, where we talk about how we make the kind of documentaries we make, and we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't have Isaac here. I thought we were talking about inertia. Kind of were. Yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isaac Elliot Fisher, mm-hmm. why don't you give us your backstory? Pretend that this is an origin episode and you have to give a certain amount of backstory. The backstory. This is where we would insert where you crash landed on this planet you were adopted by Jarl and Carla, mm-hmm. and they raised you in private school so that you wouldn't deal with other kids. Kind well, of. actually, when I crash landed on the planet, I had a gestational period, uh, an out, you know, like an in out of bus. an out of a, an egg. You know, I, I after I hatched, yeah, um, I didn't look like other humans yet, so they kind of right. kept me, you know, away. You look vaguely human now. I, right? Yeah, it took a long. People at time. home, take a good look at him. Look, mm-hmm. human-like, human-esque, human-esque. You uh, grew up in Clinton, Ontario. That's right, right Canada. up the street from you. <clears throat> you grew up up. You grew up down. I believe it's down. Down. The down the street. From, east. From where I east of where I live. I, I only think I lived there for five years. Four, it was also the same years, street that you grew years. up on. And it's ironically the same street I grew up on. You're Trivial. significantly younger than Mark mm-hmm. and myself. Mm-hmm. How did you enter into this terrible scenario of trying to make? movies for a living because I bought an eight millimeter camera in grade no wait I was eight years old and it was and I and I will say that it was eight millimeter not super eight wasn't super eight so super eight what they stopped making regular eight when you were a kid which was actually 16 split in half yeah right yeah and I bet you they stopped making it before you were a kid they were Uh, shooting super eight we were I think we were in super by the yeah yeah so that by this point they nobody made this but Kelvin Jervis of Jervis photo that's right Clinton Ontario found a roll of regular eight 
and and I was eight years old, and I shot all these stop motion um, films in my living room, like you do, like you do with yeah. playmates, playmates, play Playmobil toys, little right. D- Denmark toys, right? And uh, and then just always had a camera, just always was shooting something. <clears throat> um, I think. Other than just knowing your family and knowing you growing up, I think that uh, I think it was until high school I started taking it a little bit more seriously. I don't think I actually thought of it as a career until right at the end of high school. Um, and there was some film festivals that we worked, uh, like some student film festivals student that film I was festival. in that in high school that you had had. Uh, and had I was one of the mentors. Part of yeah, and uh, and then after I <clears throat> I graduated, went to film school after a year off, and then. Uh, it was after I was coming out of film. Actually, sorry, let me back up. I was in high school. I was a fanatic about a certain type of Toyota vehicle, okay, four by fours. And yeah, I like thought, the most high school kids are crazy about Toyota four by fours. It's just a thing that Marty McFly was. It's a known thing that right. you go through that what I call the Land Cruiser phase. The Land Cruiser phase. Yeah, yeah it's right after you nobody else girls, in Clinton. And then you don't want them anymore. Right. When you realize I'm sick of girls, I'm going to love Land Cruisers. Toyota Land Cruisers. That's right. So I was just out of high school mm-hmm. before I went to post-secondary, mm-hmm. and I said, you know what, I'm going to go make a documentary about these Toyota Land Cruisers because um, some people I was working for that did corporate videos had done a whole series of documentaries on collectors of classic snowmobiles. Is that how you knew about documentaries of, of a specific of type? I mean, what I mean by that is there are niche groups, mm-hmm. there are aficionados, they want to see the thing they love. Right, I, I got inspired by the <laughs> fact that I was working for some distance co- distant cousins of mine in Kitchener mm-hmm. that made um, corporate did corporate videos at a company called C to C Productions. Rob, who is a Batman collector. Right, so huge Batman collector. Mm-hmm. So he has this huge Batman collection, really mm-hmm. passionate about this, motorcycles, different things that he's passionate about. Mm-hmm. And they internally produced a series of documentaries called Classic Sleds. And, and they just basically went to collectors of these snowmobiles and did these, these films. And I didn't really look at them. I don't think I knew really what it meant to make a documentary with a thesis statement with like a of story. Course. So it was more like, they're like glorified music videos with some music and some classic sleds. And then you talk to a collector, what do you like about this? So I said, you know what, I'm going to do that for Land Cruisers. So 19 years old, I borrowed... M- all the savings of a young guy from Goddard from here who Wait worked that worked at Zellers. You borrowed the savings of, of a kid who lived here. Right, a friend of mine who so you lived had a in Goddard. In I had an executive producer in Goddard, and he was like a young guy who worked at Zellers, and he he had like all saved up all his money. It was like six thousand dollars, and I borrowed all of it, and I said, That's I'm, I'll, not good. "I'll pay you back with interest." That's not good. And I actually, ended up having to borrow more to buy a new computer when I came back, and then I went across Canada and across the United States flying. Uh, I did like 13 flights in two weeks by myself, 19. I hosted it, I directed it, I shot it, I edited it, and then... Sold it to Bulgaria. I sold it to Russia and Bulgaria on a, from a foreign distributor and then printed a 1,000 Glassmaster DVDs and sold them and bought advertisement space in magazines and sold them through the mail and paid this guy's money back. Okay, you should stop there and, and we'll say this. That wasn't the first time that you got on my and Mark's radar. It was when you're in high school and you showed a similar lack of restraint. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> when we did, we did a, a would be it was a weekend. 
Yeah, it was, a, it was a, an intensive. You yeah, an intensive weekend was called Imago. Mm. And actually, uh, look, we have a yeah, there's a an Easter egg. Yeah. You just pointed at something, and there's an audio side to this. There's a lunch pail, a silver lunch pail, metal that lunch pail. It says Imago. It says Imago, and it, it might from, be from that very it was, year. Yeah. So, what year would that be? Two thousand. Three, two thousand four. Okay, probably? so in the early two thousands, we were doing these, and might have been even earlier. For all I know, I don't have yeah. a good memory of it, but I think it was early two thousands. We were doing these student uh, film festival and learning intensive learning weekends yeah. at Clinton High School, Central here in Secondary School, around a teacher who's now retired, but yeah. a really good guy. Stephen he was Oliver. really great, and basically, it was the students created their own films independently. They, they submitted them to a festival like you would to a normal film festival. Right. And then when you went to the festival, not only would there be a gala at the end of it and a big mm. special event, but preceding that, the kids from all over, say, Ontario, this part of Ontario, right. would come come to Clinton, stay in town, um, board in town, and or billet, as I guess it was called. Billeting. And, uh, and they would produce like a, a short together uh, with, with people right. like yourself, industry people. And my job... It, it emerged that I would do a documentary mm -hmm. about the making of during that mm -hmm. two-day period. So we'd always have too many kids, and you couldn't, obviously, mostly at the time kids wanted, we're all going to shoot. Every kid comes in and says, I'm going to shoot. Mm -hmm. And I remember at that one, James Buchanan was there, and he worked in the industry and was always known as a first AD, and I believe very skilled first AD and production coordinator and many other jobs. But he was a very handy kind of a guy and had a lot of skills, had been in the Army. And I remember him standing beside me, and you were... You were you had built a jib, a little jib, yeah, that's right. and you were very proud of your jib. And I said, because let's be honest, you were an annoying kid in some ways. Let's be we have to call a spade a spade. But Still that, am. that annoying <laughs> element is useful because it's like a pesky determination. Mm -hmm. And I said to, to to James, I said that kid drives me crazy. Those are the kind of people who succeed. Yeah. Because he just is... I built it out of a weightlifting bench. That's right. But you were just <laughs> blind to other stuff. Like, I'm going to get what I want, and I'm going to get it out of your pocket. If you don't guard yourself, yeah. I'll take... Anyway, anyway, so I said to James, that's the kind of person who goes far. So you're on James's radar, my radar, and Mark Hussey. I didn't even know really at the mm. time. I was making these behind-the-scenes things with the kids, and they were basically bringing stuff to me, and I was cutting it together into a kind of a jokey element because the deliverable was never met. Mm. Anyway, all that to say... What I noticed was that Isaac worked harder than the other kids and was more driven and took it more seriously. And if there was a, an alpha male who knew about stuff, Isaac would go where that guy was and try and basically elbow that guy aside to say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know how to do that. So that part is frustrating, but also you realize, oh, he is really wants to be in on it. And if you would knock him down, he would say, okay, well, let's he would come back. So the well, desire case, was case, enough. Case in point, it was right after that. It was actually right at the end of high school. I was getting, uh, I got a contract uh, from the health unit in town to, yes. pro to produce um, narrative shorts that were anti-bullying education right. videos by the students, for the students, so to speak. Correct. I went to James Buchanan. <clears throat> Said so this is because James Buchanan had done a PSA in town doing with the same me. thing with you, yeah. and I said this is what we're trying to do, and he said no, you can't do it, you you actually can't do it. That's right. And I went to you and had you got you to write it, mm -hmm. and we did do it because it was yes. exactly as you say. Like they would like he would go no, you can't do that. I'm like oh well, it's not that I, not that I would defiantly say you know screw you, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just like okay, that's your opinion, <laughs> and I would just do it anyway. Right, which is by the way. One of the things that will emerge throughout Faux Pop Film School, assuming that we continue to make them, is that we're basically 
laying out skills that you need in order to do these things. Yeah. One of those skills that we're obviously defining is this, this drive and passion that refuses to listen to logic, mm. reason, financial sen- sensibility, you know, def- all def- these things. Defective. <laughs> Insert. <laughs> yeah. So there's this idea at the core where people like me who are older, you see someone like that and you think, it's like the Navy SEALs. The only people who become Navy SEALs are those who refuse to quit. I will totally take that analogy, uh, and it, my my head is enormous now. No, no, that you shouldn't take it that way. Oh, because there's there's, it's that's You're, that's the baseline. I think that's the zero. Oh, I'm above Navy SEALs. God, no, I'm, no, I'm saying no, I'm saying that that attribute in the film world is is the baseline because you're told basically yeah. you're never going to get a job and right. you have to move and you have to do this and you have to do that and, and the whole function of it is how many times can you hit the brick wall? Well, the answer is all as the ma- times. as many times as you can. All, all the times. Yeah. So anyway, we ended up that we knew about Isaac, we knew about his skill set, and when I say we, I mean Mark and I, when Mark and I started to form our little faux pop thing, or the germ of faux pop, I believe we got you to shoot some stuff right away. I was shooting music videos um, right out of college, because uh, as a cinematographer, that's actually a lot of up-and-coming cinematographers kind of go that route, is, is you very quickly realize that in commercials and in and especially music videos, you can be really creative in a no-holds-barred no kind of way. You don't have to have logic behind why you're doing something a certain way. So I started right away imitating my favorite lighting out of movies in um, music videos. And I shot one for a local band and did a very Blade Runner thing. And you guys came out to set. And I, I remember that was the first time that you guys went, oh, okay, like he's he's arriving. Is that when you built the set we inside? We built the set, the, yeah, yeah. In, the old, in the old Catholic Yeah, and school. I remember thinking, okay, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. Aside from and that. And then we started shooting together, <clears throat> right after that. How did you know that you were going to be a cinematographer at that point? Like, like everybody, you probably thought, I'm going to be a director. Yep. I totally went through film school, three years of film school going, I'm going to be a director, and I'm going to be a writer and a director. And I think it was naive not really understanding what those roles really meant and what they right. mean in the industry. Because I thought, because to me it was like kind of like, well, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And when I, when I was calling it director, I wasn't realizing that that's more of a cinematographer job, which was more the visual side of things. I'm going to design the shots. And of course, I think my biggest mistake too is that coming from a small town where nobody else was doing what I was doing, I mean, there was a few people I would drag along with me. I had to have all the skills. I had to do all the things, so I wasn't right. a very good team player. I was also an only child for ten, until I was 10. I was homeschooled, so I was very used to doing just me. So when I went to film school, that was a great experience of like, oh, I have to work as a team, and I have to work together, and I, had, right. I, I was very privileged to have some amazing supportive friends that were older than me, who were better at being team leaders and team, right. but they, took, right. they could take advantage of my passion and my skills, and then go, listen, Isaac, you have to work as this group um, and that kind of steered me into a path of oh you know a cinematographer is a collaborative job you are the right hand person of the of the director you it is your all job being well. yeah all being well <laughs> it is your job to deliver the director's vision visually and and that can be you know it's varying uh, definitions within that umbrella because of course you could be a little bit more visual and you can be the director could be more visual um, you can you lean on each other in different ways but then ultimately you're in charge of the visuals that end up on screen so it wasn't until I was graduating film school that I went oh this is because I didn't I'm not a very I don't really say read performances very well which is a very important skill for a director a director needs to be able to read 
bullshit. They need to have a bullshit meter, right? Well, so, there's a way that there's something that, if I can jump in on that, I think the 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 delineation of you would say calling it bullshit, but I'd say it's it's to be able to see gradations in something that are uh, hard to explain. Like we've had this discussion many times. Generally, in a creative argument, the person who can best articulate their position is right. Yes. Because you understand the thinking behind the reason that they have that. Yeah, and not only do they have to be able to acknowledge the gradation, they have to be able to step in and and make a, an adjustment using a very complicated, you know, you're not going in there and just being able to go do it angry. Right. You have to be able to make fine-tuned adjustments with another That's person right. emotionally and be able to articulate that. And, and also, to me, one of the things that is critical in there that is different, and I'll get to this in a second, mm. A cinematographer can come down to some technical skills that replace something that a director has to do with these very soft, squishy, interpretive skills. Yeah. So if soft you were, skills, hard skills. It, it, and the soft skills are potentially um, things that are, they're maybe not as cool in a way. Yeah. Like it's cool to get out a light meter and get the kit yeah. and the tools. Yeah, and, and yeah very hands on, very right. technical. Like this is where the camera's gonna go, and then you go in, and as I, you know, as every DP likes to say, we paint with light. Well, that's just literally what you're doing. You're going in and you're painting with light and where things go. And that's what, and I think, you know, the, the funny thing was, it was, you know, you go through film school, you're like, you're learning all these, these new titles you've never watched. I started watching Blade Runner. I come out of, I'm coming out of film school, I'm gonna do this music video. I do a Blade Runner. Spin yeah. like off of of the idea of these moving backlights and, and beams through through a set piece. But I was also <clears throat> love loving the building of things, which I'm now in my career really realizing how much the production design kind of is married to to cinematography. And right. then I went, I should have been focusing on this all the way through, even though I was, you know, getting awards and focusing on cinematography as one of my three majors. I didn't realize that this is my career path until right at the end of three years of post secondary. And it was at that point that I'm like, okay, this is what I want to be. Well, I think in this case, the background in like handyman skills from your family, yeah. that's where that gets married in. Yeah. And your background probably didn't push you towards those soft skills, which are all about those careful delineations and yeah. looking at story and breaking story down a certain way. Like all of those things, we, if Ridley Scott were sitting here right now, he'd say, well, of course I have to paint with light, and I have to, yep. and I have to. Ridley Scott's a unicorn, I think. Yeah, well, there, there's, Or a yeah. Soderbergh, or yeah. whatever. You could yeah. name... The O-Tours, but that's a very North American issue, is where, <clears throat> is where North America, we love to put guys like, like him or James Cameron on a pedestal to go, well, that's what all directors should be, because well, they should be O-Tours. You might be describing your own, yourself, looking at... Blade Runner and Terminator mm. and growing up and thinking, that's what I want to be. I want to be that, that guy. guy. Rather than going, or that woman. I'm going to be additive to right. somebody else's vision. Which is exactly what I realized, this is actually what I'd rather do. I'd rather be additive to somebody else's, like, take what they can do. Because I was actually concerned in college. I'm like, gosh, I'm going to have to figure out how to be a writer. I don't know if I can write. And I was trying. I still have books full of stuff. And I go, man, I don't really have to do this if I am an additive to a writer-director. And that right. I'm doing this job, which is which is applying my skills. And I mean, going back to your point of my upbringing, I mean, it really makes a lot of sense. So you look at my mother and her family are amazing visual artists and musicians, and my father is like a do-it-all technical person. A classic uh, DIY. Yeah, DIY, uh, red-green, if you will. So you put those two together, and you get this visual artist who can do a whole bunch of technical things. And that's right. me. So... How does that dovetail into 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and us making that documentary. This is the part that... Um, so we've talked about... You saw the two episodes, or you saw them. Mark and I basically had this lengthy background. And one of my friends looked at them and said, this is boring. Get to the part where you're making the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nobody cares about you. They want to hear about Kevin Eastman or Peter Laird, right? They want to hear, yeah. like, sort of... Get right down to the brass tacks. How did you do this or how did you do that? But I think we have to set things up so that people know if they care. Well, I mean, basically, I mean, it says film school on the screen. So it's like, it's, I, that's, it's not about, it's, this isn't the podcast about making just making that specific Correct. doc. This is about making films. So, like, it, and, and my, my concern, actually, watching the first two, just if we're going to do a review within the show. You know what we should meta. do is to see if we how far up our asses we can get our heads. Really yeah, far. I really think far. Um, is that you go, um, now you see, now you throw me off. Well, with the, it's observation of, <laughs> by hearing our story, you should be able to derive the observation. These are yeah. the preconditions that lead to. Exactly. Whatever. Making anything. So we need to be able to move beyond just the Turtle Power film. Right. And then go, oh, well, this is this other thing we were making or right. break down this commercial we were shooting. Well, or it, what, what to me is what, what you have to realize when you're going to make a movie is that there's an approach and an attitude that all has to be developed before you start shooting and compiling material, mm. before you start coming up with a thematic statement or whatever. There's a, a set of preconditions that when the right people get together, they go, ah, we've made 360 degrees out of this circle. But I mean, like Turtle Power took us five years to, to create, not because it actually took us five years to shoot, but it no. just, we were, you know, many different circumstances around it. Life is in the it. way of that. And... And, you know, we learned so many of those things about ourselves and in the, in the group during that process. So even using Turtle Power as an example, if somebody was just to go out and watch that and go, well, I don't really, they seem to be like talking pretty high stuff about this art that they're creating. It's like, well, sure, I'm, we're now referencing the three or four other documentaries we've yeah, shot since. they haven't seen. Which they haven't seen yet. So, and hopefully we'll see soon. Well, no, what you're going to see is, can, don't turn it off. Oh, man. Engineer Jeremy, we're not in sync. That was good. It was perfect. Yeah. Perfectly not in sync, actually, if you think about it. That screen is like a half second delay, so it's really Oh, hard. I'm not even looking at that. Yeah. Wow. Um, anyway, I, I want to tell the story through the personal story because I think if we know that, mm. there's probably some kid out there that's like you. There's some kid out there, that, probably not like me, but there's, and there's nobody like Mark Hussey. Never mind. Forget it. This is... This is the last episode of Full Pop <laughs> Film School. Thank you all 14 people who like to watch this. Uh, we're going we're gonna to drive through this. We're going to keep going because what I want to yeah. say is there's probably somebody who watched Turtle Power and really liked it, mm. and they're going to hear something that's maybe interesting. And that's going to happen with the He-Man and the Conan and, yeah. you know, Transformers, yeah, whatever Yeah, because you're, you're, you're learning on how to do it. Yeah, because, I mean, like, going into Turtle Power, it was, as I was going through film school, I was collecting a lot. Rob, Batman, you know, my was family. Was it the Batman is, that made you want to collect turtles? Uh, I mean, have you been to my grandparents' house? Like, my family are, like, hardcore uh, collectors of everything. I didn't know that. Generation. Why would I have been to your grandparents' house? You know, John Fisher working with your Uncle Dick at the auction all the time. They're all auction. I didn't go there. Anyway. Antiques, collectibles. Anyway. So... It was a pack rat instinct. Oh, yeah. So, basically... I was... I was what I was doing is I was collecting turtles at the time. The 2007 movie had come out, uh, the, the uh, Kevin Monroe's movie, and 
my girlfriend, now wife, uh, said, let's go to this. And I, and got me kind of reinvigorated because like Turtles was huge. For me in 1990, right. I was five. Perfect time. That was right. my, my childhood thing. Um, but I mean, I also wasn't a TV kid because I didn't have a lot of cables. So, mm-hmm. so I loved it, but it was for its own little weird, you know, everybody has their own reason why they love their thing. And there was sort of an a weird, edgy, art, artsy thing to the Turtle franchise, and I was rediscovering that in college. You guess you go through kind of your nostalgia phase. Still, I'm kind of there. And I was collecting it, and I, I was learning about its history. I didn't know as a five-year-old that it was a black-and-white comic book, stuff like that. So I'm learning about its history and realizing there really wasn't any resources other than a few books that said anything about its history. And the online community. And the online community, which I started engaging with early, it was before I approached mm-hmm. you guys, I said, I'm going to do a documentary or I want to work on one. Because I even, I think some people online were already talking about it. Like they some fans oh, wanted really? to make, yeah, doc. They, they, Technodrome fans? Yeah, there was one in particular. And I was like, well, I'd love to work on it, blah, blah, blah. And then I think I brought it to you guys right at that time that I'd already sent some letters to Mirage Studios who, who owned the franchise um, still at the time. And I said, in, I think it was... Um, November or October of 2008, I came to you guys and said, hey, I want to make this doc. Let's pause there for one second. Why did you come to Mark and myself? Because we were starting to do those music videos at that time. And we were like having meetings um, and discussing, you know, what are we going to do in the future? And because I had done this Land Cruiser documentary, had set a template there and gone, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to do another fan doc thing, a a, a film about something I really like. And then that... um, that you guys said, I came to you, said, hey, let's do this documentary with Mark and you were sitting on the square in, in, the, in the cold October day, and you said, nope. <laughs> well, so now let's get to it, exactly. Now let's get to it. Here's the thing. At the time, 2006, 2007, and into 2008, Podcasts were exploding. Yeah. They were, I don't know if they were new exactly. They were, well, it was, they, were, they were new because they were starting to get recognized. Right. And I was deeply into them. And I was into the way that the culture was embedding into online communities and embedding into really fresh new ways to get content to people who all have the same interests. Yeah. So when you came to talk to us about Turtles, I don't know if you knew about that drive or if it was just random luck, but Mark and I have been talking about how to enlist um, all our skills not necessarily yours or his or anybody's, but how do you get something together that you can sell to those people? And I believe it was Kevin Kelly and Wired had this uh, document, and it may not even come out then, it might have been before or after, you need a thousand true fans. Mm -hmm. And you can stimulate and develop these communities and then sell them material that they like. And as an artist, it's very difficult to find something that you can do to sell your art. So I'm a high school teacher by day. Mark Hussey does multimedia stuff. You said you were all in, which is bold, crazy, however you want to word it. Let's go back to the stuff we said before. Uh, Not willing to compromise, maybe. And when you came to me, my first reaction was no, yes. Like, I probably said it that quickly because I thought, this is fraught with turmoil Mm. and it will have appendages that go to big corporations. Like, remember all the Napster stuff and just... In the culture, there had been all this Napster and then Kazaa and then yeah. even iTunes was even nascent. I think iTunes was early then and could iTunes, you know, get music and yeah. just there was a whole The idea that people could actually consume media online was very 
fresh and new even then. And companies didn't want to split their material off and go down that stream. So yeah. I just thought, here we are, nobody, we're going to grab onto the turtles, which I even knew about from specifically the, the 84, 85, 86 stuff. Mm. And of course, it's on my radar, just I know about it. I didn't care about it as a consumer by then, but uh, I was aware of it. I knew about Eastman and Laird and all this. And I thought it was probably big and grabbed up and we were wrong. It wasn't grabbed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet. I, that was the surprising thing is that that's exactly the, the idea that, or the, the thought that I had going into it. I was looking at it going, there's no way that this isn't being done already. Yeah. Right? They're, they're, how isn't, how isn't the story being grabbed up and told? Which I think is something we're discovering now. <laughs> we are. As we're trying to do more and more of these, we're going, oh my God, they're, you know, everybody's following this. And I don't even think necessarily that they're following us. I think no, it's that not. there's that zeitgeist mo mode of, oh, this is what everybody wants. Well, what we, what we saw happening in those mid, early mid-2000s was that people who were consumers and creators at the same time we're thinking the same things. Yeah. Like, oh, I want to do a podcast about the things I love. I want to make yeah. movies and put them online. Yeah. I want to you know, have my YouTube channel or whatever. And we were doing a lot of that early stuff and it was very spotty and it wasn't all in. And you're a very all-in kind of person, so when you came and said that, I thought, "Oh, this is going to be an all-in." <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, like, in, to get into the nuts and bolts of it, because I mean, that's what I think people want to kind of get into Some is do. is that, you know, to me, it was simple. It was like we go, we take. I've, I own a, I own an HD camera, and we we buy tape stock, and I have a small lighting kit, and I just go and create a list of. These are the people you need to talk to. Yeah. You find those people and you just go out and you get them and you get them and you get them and you and you ask them. I don't know. I wasn't I didn't even think that far ahead. You I had no. I had no, lists, I had lists of things that I was like, yeah, this is the turtle the standard turtle questions you would ask and you just get all that content, you take it home, you edit it into a film and I think that that year in 2009 was going to be the 25th anniversary Correct. of the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I thought, okay, we'll just shoot these you know, two dozen Whatever. people, bring it home, edit it into a film, and by the end of this year, we'll have it up within the 25th anniversary, and within so one year. My theory was, okay, there's an, a, an embedded, baked-in community. That community is not getting the stuff it wants, or you can never get enough stuff. Uh, there's this kind of rat wheel or hamster wheel of content consumption. I always want more of the stuff I like. Yeah. They're like me. We always want more of that stuff. Let's put our stuff out there for them to enjoy. It's nicely lined up with the 2009 25th anniversary. Yeah. And basically, we were looking at fans, looking at fans, looking at collections, looking at whomever we could get in the community. And they would say, basically, here's a mirror, and the documentary will be a mirror. Look at us. Look at what we have. Look what we like. Mm -hmm. And there'd be part of that as a history. Yeah. So because, you, we, because we thought, because I think you went to Mirage and you said, hey, we want to do this documentary. Well, let me... I'll hit that separately. Yeah. I want to say there's a, a, a crux issue in the middle of that is you approach Mirage as a fan and it didn't go anywhere. Right. And that's interesting. Because their response was we can't take unsolicited you know, right. pitches. Because how many times have they heard people, hey, I want to tell your story or whatever I want to do. And I was, I, my email probably sounded like I right. was 19 or 20. Or and whatever. what's interesting about that is then I approached them. I said to you, they're not going to. They're not going to listen to you somehow. And I thought, if I approach them because I'm older and my my uh, my way of approaching my avenue in was a little different. I literally called, got hold of Gary Richardson, who was the CEO, Peter's CEO at the time, Peter uh, 
owned Mirage. Kevin had already split off, Kevin Eastman. And Peter Laird owned Mirage, and Gary Richardson was his CEO. And I called and I said, uh, you know, expecting to talk to someone on the phone and then try and hassle through. Yeah. And you get an answering machine, basically dial this number for Gary. I hit it, Gary answered, and I spoke with Gary. And Gary heard in me a certain kind of tone that wasn't like a fan. Yeah. And Gary responded to that. I won't say professionalism, but that almost a teacherly tone. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a remove or a distance that made him go, oh, this is a different approach. Mm-hmm. And after a few weeks, he came back and said to me, we can't stop you. Mm-hmm. That was the answer. And yeah. that's what I wanted to hit. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, I thought, oh, well, that changes everything. Yeah. Like that was the for me the the total difference, and that's when you started building that little city. Yeah, because we were going to try to impress them, and by and the thinking was that we would. For me, it's always like let's let's wow them with what we can shoot, right? So let's get. And we didn't have a lot of interviews yet. It, it takes a long time mm-hmm. to collect all those and a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, we we have a few because I think I'd interviewed Michelle Ivy. We interviewed the, ourselves. The fans. The fans. Um, and oh, that's so right. we interviewed ourselves. We yeah, yourself, myself. We put that's right. Yeah, and you did this like faux, like not faux. It was a true story, but it you is played a true it up. Story. And yeah. so we had. My idea was to recreate toy commercials because even at the time I was thinking to myself, well, we're, n- we're never going to get away with even using the footage. Right. So the only way we can do this is, is to shoot footage ourselves. So I built this massive miniature set that was like, I think it was like 20 feet wide yeah, by 16 so. feet deep. So. It was like this cardboard cutout, uh, well, foam core cutout city. And I had no idea what I was doing. It'd be interesting if we could put a cut, get someone to cut some of oh. that in here. Oh. It's so it doesn't oh. matter. But the idea, what, if you remember from an abstraction, it's about B-roll. Mm-hmm. What do we use to cut to? Exactly. So that was our B-roll uh, idea, was to develop our own B-roll. And then we had the strategy that when we show Gary that, Gary will go, oh. You guys are serious. Oh, that's good. This is real. Yeah. So there was always this idea that we would use our skill sets as the platform yeah. to get to the point where we would get to the next thing. Yeah. And that's been our, really our Did our we show it weapon. to anybody? I think we, we may, I hope we didn't show it to them. Well, we actually did some fan stuff. Remember you making the slime? We yeah. had that. Yeah. The idea, though, was to the, the twin forks, if there were twin forks, the two paths we were choosing, we would make material that we would show to people in the community as creators, and they would say, oh, you're a fellow creator, we take you seriously, come on in. Yeah. And then to show fans and win constituencies, so they would say, oh, you're making something that we want to see. Yeah. So you're trying to satisfy these two masters. And we didn't really, we thought for all, we, that we would only get fans, right? So if Correct. you remember, we didn't think, like, I think you knew maybe we could get Peter Laird. And I... Well, there was... I went down to New York Comic Con. That was a risk. So Gary had got me to Steve Murphy, and Steve Murphy basically said... I think you can talk to some of the people here. Not me. He said, you won't talk to me. I won't talk to you. He said, you might get Peter, but you'd have to go to Comic-Con. And that's... Well, I don't think Peter was... I had to go to Comic-Con. I was going to go to Comic-Con anyway in New York because uh, because they were going to have a booth there. Yes. And then... And, and didn't... Wasn't it... it we we're going into detail. But right. the point I would get at is this. There was an idea that 
we had access to the yes, higher to the up people yeah, and then, at these events. And then we would come back, and on our way back through, we would stop in Mirage, because right. it's just north of New York. And, and we were kind of blown away, like, wow, Steve Murphy has really helped us set this That's up. That's right. Access. And then, so you guys couldn't go. And I went with my cousin, who had done this, this C2C production, the Rob Batman Curry. Collector. And the Batman Collector. And we went there, and he, you know, he's a your generation yeah. so he comes in with this, ex- this experience and I go okay good you know I've got Rob here he's got my back we're going to do this right and and get the technical side of it all covered because there's yeah. only two of us and and I you know show up this camera bag like this you know this what, for people who are interested what was the actual gear kit at the time so the at the time um, HD video was on the precipice of moving into the DSLR world it right. was just starting but it wasn't it wasn't common. Like all, everybody remembers, oh yeah, boom, the HD the HD DSLRs came out and that changed everything. Right. And it that had just started to happen, but nobody had caught on. It hadn't the firestorm hadn't happened yet. So they were still working with what we called the prosumer cameras. And those were the Panasonic um, machines that were and, and the Sony uh, what was the the F F D? Uh, was a, there was something one fifty. The P D one fifty was that was PD the one. the P D one fifty was an S D tape based is that what mini you DV. Used? No, you see this is the thing, is that around that time they Sony figured, you know what, we can fit HD te- HD content onto right. a mini DV tape right. if we make the pixels rectangular. So you use half the pixels as HD, but you make them rectangular, right. and we can call it HD. So it's called HDV. So we had this camera that was called right. the, the, the Z1U or the FX1, and it was this you know flip-out screen. You had a handle on the top. It had you know the tapes on the but side. It, it looked real. It looked real, and you had a pro look to it, which is where the prosumer, consumer, mm-hmm. prosumer mm-hmm. comes in. That was a big thing. Like At that time, you'd spend three, dollars $4,000 on, on a piece of machinery like that. I, I had to buy the, the, the model that didn't have the audio XLR input, so you had to buy the module that went on the bottom. <laughs> you had a side handle, and, right. and since I did this Land Cruiser thing, and the camera, by the way, I bought in the Land Cruiser for the Land Cruiser documentary. I bought from a guy who worked at the Sony store in London, but he bought all the stuff at a discount and then resold it to his customers oh, in a parking lot at no. like a Burger King in London. My parents right. took me to a parking lot out of a trunk. I bought a two thousand dollar camera set that he bought. Out of Sony. That's dirty. That's rough. Right. So then, after that, while I was in film school, I bought this like three and a half thousand dollar HDV camera. Money where your mouth is. Right. And then I had this, you know, camera bag. And while I was at the convention, I wasn't carrying lights, but we had a small light kit that I had bought for the health unit thing. That's because right. Because I had when I was in high school, because they gave me a substantial budget, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go buy all these lights. So, so I had this. What was your lighting approach in that early stage? Was in it simple three point. Th- simple three point, uh, and it's still largely the same nowadays, mm, except the more te- texture, the texture, and 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 frame, and a whole lot of experience comes into that. But at this point, I'd already shot a ton of television news in high school because I was co-oping in television mm-hmm. news. I had worked in corporate video for a long time as an assistant and helping them shoot and then working up to shooting. I had shot the Lancaster thing, which really didn't have any lighting because it was just me on the road with the camera and they were outside most of the time. So I had a pretty good basic idea of three-point lighting, uh, nice soft source from the front, you know, short or you know, on this side, you know, the, the right side of, of frame, the way that they're looking, backlight, which was usually hard at that time, <laughs> and and a little bit of something in the background. And right. I usually didn't use fill or anything like that. So it was very, it was very simple. But I was starting to, on a gut level, understand, which is that tacit knowledge you have to build up over time, how to use the 
the, the framing of your interview uh, with the background, but because these were still zoom camera lenses, I thought, you don't need a second camera, you couldn't afford it anyway. No. You would just change the camera, the zoom, right. within the end, so every time right. you'd ask a question, you'd be like, yeah, and yeah. and so do you think the turtles should be like this? And then you change the zoom, and you'd try to make different looking shots throughout the interview. Or sometimes if they were going to cry, you would zoom in really slow, just like just just slow. I want to hit this. What was it that stopped you from going that? Okay, so one of the things that we would hit on is when we see other documentarists and they're doing this kind of newsy, yeah. camera light, yeah. straight on stuff. What made you? No, not to go down that road, which, by the way, I would have not liked at all. Oh, man. I, this is the thing that still to this day blows my mind because I've watched, I literally rented a brand new documentary that showed up on, on iTunes the other day, which I will not name. No, no name. No name. Yeah. And I went, they're still and doing that. They're, 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 they're at people's houses. People have a couch and there's a wall behind the couch because who puts your couch in the middle of the room? I mean, some people do. Sure. Well, we go to people's houses and move their furniture. Right. So the couch is against the wall, and you got a lamp. And how do they shoot it? They shoot it directly against. Yeah. We're so imagine the wall is directly behind us. They shoot it like this. So I'm like, like you could easily go obtuse to the angle of the couch, and all of a sudden have an infinitely more interesting yeah. shot. And it just takes this much thinking or effort to move it this way. But I think because I was coming from a a narrative background, some of these ideas as a cinematographer were already there, but I was treating it like this is, I was dismissing it as a, oh, this is simple and it's just talking heads. Yes, you were. I, I <laughs> but still do to a degree. <laughs> but here's what, and I can't speak for Mark, but I'll, Mark has just come in by the way. I'll speak for myself. As someone who was interested in documentary, and I won't say that was my background per yeah. se, but I had spent some time in that. I wanted, uh, if you had said to me, how would we shoot this? I would have said, it has to look like we're making the kind of documentaries that we would like to watch. Like exactly. It has to immediately look yeah. like your, uh, your, the uh, editorial point of view is not in. Yeah. It's out. Yeah. So my, my, um, as a director, my approach would be, I don't want them to make a contact with me mm -mm. as the camera. I want it to be that we're seeing this naked moment. Yeah. So I think right away when you started to do that, I was like, oh, this is all, we're, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. We're already in this area where it looks. And I was probably just going by the book going, this is how you do it. Right. You know, like this is, you, you talk off camera. This is the way yeah. you're supposed and, and to do you, it. And it looks more real. Yeah. So we I mean, had, we, we were taught some of those basics in film yeah, school, but... People but go to news so easily. Very easily. It up. Yeah, and they put a... And, and I mean, this was even before people were regularly using a second camera unless the second camera was on the interviewer, which is a very common thing. That was what we used to call chum, uh, because chum television yes. in, in Toronto uh, would do a B camera that saw the accoutrement. They saw right. the lights, they saw the yes. camera stand. They, the, the B camera was this truly behind-the-scenes intercut with him yeah. and that was the chum look at the time so we started doing that a little bit and we were going to we maybe yeah. well, and because part of that was when it was fan focused you want to go you're in the process mm -hmm. everybody yeah. but ironically we never approached our core interviews like that that was this very I almost want to call it thesis driven like mm -hmm. there's the person and then we're going to immediately dive into the content in a way that wasn't just sort of like Hi, I'm Matt Fang. I'm reporting for Kids World, and here we are with Peter Laird. Peter. Exactly. But we didn't go down any of those roads. <laughs> no. And, and you, just to, to quickly hit this, there was a moment where we crossed a path 
where we saw all these things come into play very quickly. And that was at New York, right? And it was went at New York. Can you just sort of like sum it up really quickly? We want to try and wrap this up in about 15 minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, like you're talking when, we, when I met Kevin for the first time, right? Yeah. So, so as I say, I've got my camera bag and we, and we were kind of already kind of feeling, you know, our, is it our oats? Is that the right word? Well, I would say that we were shooting material that looked like it it was already better than a certain kind of documentary, mm-hmm. and we were generating B-roll that was inherently interesting, mm-hmm. and we knew that we had an approach that was, I don't want to say more mature, but that's what I would work Right, with. so I mean, we and we had passes to get in, so we could yeah. get in before the doors were open and that kind of thing, so I, I, I assumed, I think we all collectively assumed that Kevin Eastman would be at New York Comic Con mm-hmm. with Heavy Metal, mm-hmm. because he still held Heavy Metal at the mm-hmm. time, and... So I figured out on the map where it would be. I went in early the first day and spotted him down the aisle, walked up to him and said, hey, Kevin, we're doing a documentary about you and the history of the Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be in it? And he's like, yeah, okay, sure. And I, in retrospect, he kind of go, yeah, there's definitely, he definitely probably looked at me as if I was uh, another, you name, uh, fill a name of fan here, hardcore fan. And I followed him around and we chatted and he you know, talked to his wife on the phone and, and, then, and then we, I, kept, I came back to the booth and I came back to but there was, there was an officialness that, that, that came with what I was saying and doing. And then he said, yeah, you know what, let's go have a drink. Yeah. And we went and had a drink at a bar. And then I called you and kind of said, this is what's going on. And then by the next conversation you had with him on the phone, he's like, right. So you know, what we found is you know, you approach with the gear, you use your gear in a professional way, you approach yeah. all that in a professional level. You respect them in their space you, while they're working. Yeah, you fly on the wall, you pushed your fan interest aside, yeah. and I'm, I'll admit there's probably a lot of whipping from us about that. You cannot do that, you you know. And I probably was already doing that to a degree, to be I'm fair. Not taking that <laughs> but there'd be a certain amount of fear about you crossing over that. Yeah. And I know that I said that to Steve Murphy. I said, you know, he's a fan, but he's not that guy. No, because, I mean, already I've been working professionally yes. in the corporate and, and commercial world, so I'm already dealing with CEOs of whatever company. I'm not fans of them, but I have to show up right. and represent the company and do a good job and, that, and not talk like an idiot. And that followed up by somebody else, me, calling into Kevin and saying, Setting it up. Hey, Kevin, uh, you know, you talked to Isaac, that's great, and blah, blah, blah. And... Honestly, I don't know if we'd be sitting here making documentaries today if Kevin Eastman wasn't the nicest guy in the world. For real. real. Because Kevin's response to Isaac's interaction and then my call, I believe it was the second call I had with him, he said, you got to come to L.A., which we are hoping he would say. Right. And then he said, and you can stay in my house. Yeah. His uh, empty house that he had up for sale, it was up at Summit and Pinnacle in the same enclave of houses as Britney Spears and Gwen Stefani. And it was just crazy that it happened. But when we saw that, somehow that opened, I don't know what, but this realization was, yeah. oh. Yeah, 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 this is for oh. real. Yeah, yeah. And then it was Henson to yeah. me. And That's that was, what crossed over. And that was bizarre because Henson, I had just phoned, I'd either emailed or I'd phoned the, no, I'd, I'd emailed the general email inbox That's at right. Jim Henson Company. And the PR person I was picking up, remember I picked up my uh, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, from from work that day, and I got a phone call on my cell phone going, from hi, Nicole. I, this is Nicole from Jim we Henson Company. We won't say her last name. 
you know, and, and you know, like, hey, you know, Brian Henson's really interested in talking to you for this documentary. And you're just like. And we could never have known that it was meaningful to him for a number of reasons. Of course. Which we later find you out. You just throw spaghetti at the wall yeah. and see what happens. But I mean, the, and the whole process all the way through just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed like that, like getting all the voice cast. Because I remember yeah. I started. Uh, let's, let's not go there right yet, yeah. because to me, that's a huge step. Oh, it's huge. This, this Henson thing, I, I don't know. There's a point at which if you're a filmmaker and you're looking for, it's like you're walking around at this level and you need to get that one interview that's here. Mm-hmm. When you get that one, this even happened to me this week. And I won't say what project, I can say what project is, Turtle Power Volume 2. And I'm trying to get certain voice actors and they always, their representatives or even the voice actors themselves or whatever the people are, their role, they say, who else is in it? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Brian Henson didn't do that. Brian Henson inherently wanted to be in it. But once we talked to Brian Henson, when people would say, who else is in it? Brian Henson. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm in. And that's how you got the voice cast, yeah. if I remember correctly. Kind of. Well, kind of at the same time. And, it, and actually, the voice cast like dominoed within themselves. I got one. I think it was Renee Jacobs I got first, who played the voice of, of April O'Neil in the original cartoon. And then I called like a friend of Barry Gordon's yeah. got his cell phone number and then it just went boom, boom, boom and then Pat Fraley helped me kind of get James Avery and a few of the other ones and then James Avery was a big name in that same arena where as soon as That's you go, right. you got James Avery, you got yeah. Uncle Phil. Because he had been Uncle Phil and Fresh Prince but also, here's the other crazy thing. If you watch Turtle Power, you're seeing a reunion that had never happened. Exactly. They had never gotten back together after the show And, ag- and again, even that reunion is representative of the fact that you're going, how how has this never happened and how has this doc never happened and how has Kevin and Peter haven't, haven't talked to each other for 20 years? And, like, and nobody talked to Brian Henson and it was his dad's kind of last final, movie. final yeah, work. But I mean, even and this is something I really want to clear up with, with anybody who's a fan of, of Turtles in, in in this doc specifically, is that when I approached, or when we approached this together, but as, as me as a fan, I was looking at that first movie. That first movie was pinnacle for anybody who was a Turtle fan in the in the early 90s, right? So, so Steve Barron's movie, 1990, that film, everybody goes, well, the DVDs came out, why don't they ever do behind the scenes? Because nobody has ever, sh- nobody ever shot behind the scenes That's in those right. movies, right? Those movies didn't have content to create a behind the scenes. Nobody those, had interviewed the people who had made it. Nobody had shot movies, it on set. More to the point, they barely got made. They barely they got made barely as, we, had the money. as we, yeah, found, we out. found out. So then you go, so what we created, in effect, in that in our first documentary on the Turtles, is the behind the scenes yeah. that first movie. Is the only behind the scenes. I mean, Peter Laird had footage from set well, that this, we were Can we get there in a minute? Let's get there in a minute. Well, we're about to run out of time. I know, we're going to run out of time. But what we have to say is, uh, you know, what's the transferable skill? What's the lesson? It's, yeah, you throw out chum in the water and you wait for fish to show up. Mm. But you have to identify people who are cluster value. They, when you get that person, that person is a definer for a lot of other people. Yeah. And, and it, it changes. Like when we went, and I want to tell the story because it was, to me, it was maybe one of the most powerful things for me ever in my career as a, <laughs> would-be filmmaker, career. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. But we went to Los Angeles. We were staying in that beautiful home, mm-hmm. even though we were camping. <laughs> With our air mattresses. In an empty house, <laughs> where we shot in an empty house. And if Stefan Reese hadn't lent us chairs, <laughs> we, we had no chairs. We had no place to sit. <laughs> like, we had nothing. We used to sit in the car, remember? We'd go out in the car and sit. And yeah. it was like, oh, 
chairs. It's amazing to sit, really, it's if really you can. really nice. There were a couple stools, high stools. Mm. But Stefan Reese was a, a turtle fan, and he had a, a community fan community at the time. He was very good to us and helpful. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, he was thrilled to be there as well, yeah, fly sure. on the wall. Yeah. But uh, we built a, a kind of a B-roll thing at Kevin's, and Kevin became part of that. And we got to know Kevin very well. So here we are making this documentary. We get to know the people in the community not just in the community, the people in the IP very well, and they like us and they enjoy our company. And and even when we were at Henson's, it felt like he wanted to talk about this. Yes. And that's when it hit me, that powerful moment where I realized, I think we're being friends with these people. Like it's I feel more. like yes. we are actually making a real connection. Yeah. I remember sitting and looking, and which, give me this camera. Uh, I remember sitting and looking at Kevin. I remember him looking at me. And I remember thinking at one point, He's told the story a million times, and you maybe you won't even see it in the movie, but there's a moment where I think he got red-eyed, or I feel like he got red-eyed. I remember looking at him and thinking, like, we're, because we spent time with him and had been friendly with him, and he almost felt like he wanted to hang around. Remember, he wanted that pizza and beer and just kind of be there. Yeah. And, like, I don't know if it was he was lonely there, or he loved the guy time. There, there's also, explain well, I, to me, I like, to pick up on that sentiment, I think when, when we were there, I remember... You kind of acknowledged that privately within our group on our downtime, but also to the people we were with, that you know we would often make the joke, we're, we're nice Canadian guys, yeah. right? We're nice Canadian guys. But here's the thing is that I all of a sudden felt, <laughs> it's sort of corny, but I felt the pride of that. Exactly. Is that I felt the pride of, any, you know, call it national pride to a degree. Yeah, I feel nice, it feels nice to be Canadian and be known as that, that stereotype of being a nice Canadian. But then I was like, yeah, but we're actually just... A group of nice yep. guys, and this is working to our advantage. And you don't want to use it as a as a crass tool, no. but it's like, no, this is this is good. This makes this this yeah. makes us good at our job. And that that's the thing that hit me in that moment is I thought looking at Kevin, Kevin, and I thought he likes this, mm -hmm. and I thought I like this. Yeah. I'm not thinking about selling it. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about making him answer the questions that I need him to answer. I'm not thinking about what we call the housekeeping. I'm not thinking about the edit. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about the lighting. I'm not thinking about anything. All I'm doing is looking at this guy and I'm talking to him and I enjoy in that moment. And I thought, I'm getting stuff here that I'm realizing this is like a real moment. And I love in that moment the feeling that I'm fully engaged in that. And that's when it really hit me and I thought, this makes this different. Like, mm -hmm. this is not what I thought it was. We're not making a fan doc for the fans to go, oh, look at these collectibles, look at those turtles, look at this thing. Yeah. It's more than that, we're digging into something. Mm -hmm. And he talked about, you know, I don't, I'm not saying anything that's not in the doc, but he talked about his life and he talked about Peter Laird and he talked about the turtles in a way that, you know what I mean, you could feel. Yeah. And we went to the gym and then hung out with them. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that we were hanging out with them. We felt like we're with a celebrity. Oh my goodness. It was more like we're with someone who might have been in a painful moment in his life and wasn't really saying that. Until years, years later. later. Yeah. But we could feel something happening. And I was just, I remember sitting in the car later and I remember that's where we had the sandwich. Like we have to like what we're doing right now because this is awesome. Mm. If we never sell it, this feeling was this worth is, it. This is what it's about. I think we, we were for, recorded that moment and I said, that is worth it. And <laughs> I think you did acknowledge the fact it would be really nice to get our money nice back. To <laughs> nice be nice to, get, to sell. It would be really nice to get our money back. But I mean, I think there's so, and there's so many points I'd love to jump on in that, especially we, years, the, the, we can do the years a, later. We'll do a second part. Yeah, we'll do a second. Maybe we can record a second part right now. Um, and, and, and I think that this is a great place to wrap it up because I think the, there, 
this is like the, the tip of the iceberg that we have learned and taken on into our experiences yes. in the last three or four films that, that are yet to come out. But the, um, yeah, that exact feeling you're talking about, because, because really, when we don't experience that real connection with, a, with an interview subject, it, you, you walk away from we, it going, we oh. all know. Yeah. We all know. You walk away and go, damn. They have that Didn't connect, and, yeah. and and I've even said it to you as a way. It's almost like a, a like a romantic mm-hmm. or a, flirtatious, a, an attractive yeah. chemistry. Yeah. And I won't say that I was attracted to Kevin or that Kevin was attracted to me. That's ridiculous. But I'd say I was connecting with him. It doesn't matter if he if he was here and said that never happened. Mm-hmm. That never happened. Irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Irrelevant. For for us in that moment, the way we were connecting with the people, and I remember when James Avery walked in. And he goes. He looks around before he yeah. got there. Do you remember at the road? I wasn't there. I was. I was shooting. Oh, okay, so he <laughs> comes in and he looks around, and there's a compound. Mm-hmm. So there's a compound to get in. Yeah. And there's a compound to get into the yeah, house. The gate. Yeah. And he comes in and he goes, "Am I going to get killed in here?" Yeah. Like he says to me, "Am I going to get killed in here?" And I said, "Oh no, no, your friends are inside." And then I said, "It's kind of like that van that pulls up." Yeah. yeah and yeah. he didn't laugh. Yeah. He went. And he walked in and he said, you better have some good craft table in here. And there's like a couple of donuts. And I had licked them all. <laughs> but then James Avery saw those people and the whole room changed. Didn't and I think we even have footage of this. We're mm. all smiling and everybody's looking at each other really happy. And I, I still to this day think that's the moment where we probably looked at each other and went, Oh, this is working. Yeah, yeah. Like this is really happening. Oh, and it was actually the footage that we have of right after that moment is when we're sitting on the balcony, going like pinching ourselves mm-hmm. that night, going mm-hmm. like the valley is below us. In in you know like yeah, you're looking out down at the, Universal City. Yeah, and, and there's the lights twinkling. We're in this house built by Alex Van Halen on the side of a mountain with a gated community, and going, we will never have this. We'll never again. get this good again. But. Guess what? It has been that good again. Not from the accoutrement of the house, no. but we've had that exact same. We take that into every mm. interview now, if we're lucky. Mm. What we, I think what we really hit in that moment is really what makes the documentary good. And if you think about... Uh, you Making know, it human. The, that's it. Right. The very best documentaries don't have to be about anything. They're about the things that are happening for, in people's lives where the people share something. <laughs> Outside, except for legendary Land Cruisers, which was about four by fours. That's that early stage. You're in that early <laughs> stage. But but don't you think that was a huge? That trip was a huge moment in the realization these docs aren't about fan things. Mm-hmm. They're not about Kevin and Peter. And, and that was the per se. And the difficult thing is that up until that point, we had no reason why not to to be presenting ourselves as such out on in the, in the fan community. Mm-hmm. We were saying this is what we're doing. This is who we yeah. are. Blah, blah blah. And then all of a sudden, you realize it's something different, and you go. How the heck do we explain this? And we're going to sit on this for five more years. We didn't, we didn't know, know that. that. We didn't know that. <laughs> we're going to sit on this for five more years and still have to explain to people, it, hey, it's something different. Yeah. We didn't expect yeah. it to be like this. I, I think we really discovered something, not just in documentary making, which is really important, but in doing anything like this, you have to do it all the way down, which mm-hmm. I will say flat out, I did learn from you in a way. It's that... The crazy fan thing, however you want to call it, that crazy drive. Passion. I don't have to have it, mm-hmm. but I have to feel it when I'm in that. Mm-hmm. If I can keep distance from it, personally, mm-hmm. like, okay, now I'm in that perfect balance. Yeah. I'm outside enough to keep that mm-hmm. executor control going, keep asking the questions, keep talking, mm-hmm. keep remembering your story points and keep flying that. But then there's a part of me that I'm just flowing and I'm like, 
I'm looking at Kevin Eastman and I'm feeling his feelings and he's feeling that I'm feeling his feelings and there's this interaction. Feedback loop. Yeah. And you really feel like, oh, that's a good flow. Yeah. And then when they leave and we all are like, oh, that feels great. Yeah. That's what you have to do when you're making a real documentary. It has to be real. Or anything, movies. Or lunch. Gotta really feel the sandwich. We're gonna cut right here. And we're going to say thanks for listening to Faux Pop Film School, episode three. Sorry it took so long. I think they're watching. Be... Listening or watching. Yeah, they are watching. Yeah. I think there's going to be an episode four, five, six, and I think we're going to keep going. And uh, special thanks to Isaac Elliott Fisher for coming into Faux Pop Station. Thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>